Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Chris uh, asked me to do a workshop on something. I don't know that I'm not sure if I've ever done a workshop just on this alone, on how I've come, how I came to believe my struggles in coming to believe and connect. I guess eventually with a power greater than myself. Uh, and I, uh, I started thinking about it, and I, I struggled a lot with this. I remember. And I remember coming into treatment centers that would take me to AA meetings and I'm desperate and I feel like I'm dying. And I would listen to people share and I'd kind of get with them. I'd start to identify with some things. And then the minute they talked about God, it was like, oh, no, oh, no. And it was like this steel door would slam in my head. And then everything else they said after, from that point on, they were an idiot. You know what I mean? From that, it's, and I couldn't hear anything. And uh, we're going to get into a little bit why that some of that's like that. Uh, but there's a paragraph in the beginning of We Agnostics that, that really is, is the point I had to get to. Uh, and I think it's the point that brings us to the table. It, it's I don't have to really believe in God so much as I just have to get the reality of my life. And you get the reality of your life. If you have alcoholism, like I have an alcoholism, you're stuck. You've got to find something. You're stuck. And it says uh, on page 44, in the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. And the whole book up to this point, the doctor's opinion in the first 44 pages are basically trying to tell you you're screwed. I mean, you're really... <laughs> really? You, yeah, you think you're going to be back on your feet? <laughs> nah, you're screwed. You're screwed. Uh, we hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. And there's a... This is a little controversial, but I, th- I think from my experience and observations, I think there's a lot of problem drinker people in Alcoholics Anonymous. People who don't need to do that, their problem ends where the bottle ends. That they just, they're the kind of people that wake up one day and, and say to themselves, man, I just got a DUI. I'm going to lose my wife and kids. I, I'm not going to do that ever again. And they just put the plug in the jug and join some church or something or just, or just whatever, just get busy at work or in their family and they're fine. They don't suffer from alcoholism. They don't need the steps. They don't need a sponsor because their head's pretty clear. Now they can make good decisions sober. Not the kind I make solving problems that haven't occurred yet. But they they make just good reality-based, you know, decisions. I mean, they're not overly sensitive. They're not prone to depression and bouts of anxiety almost to the point where they can't get out of bed. I mean, they're not like that. They're just fine when they quit drinking. And then there's me. And the people at Alcoholics Anonymous was really designed for. People who, when I quit drinking, I, it feels like I'm doing time. Kind of. 
So if we hope we make clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. And this is, this is the best description of alcoholism, I think, anywhere in our literature for me. It, it really hits me. It talks about two things. If these two things are, are present in your life, well, you're in a lot of trouble. And it has really not anything to do with how much you drank. It never, it doesn't have anything to do whether you've been to jail or not. It doesn't have to do with whether you did, also did drugs. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with any of that stuff. It has to do with these two things. It says, first, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. Well, what do they mean by entirely? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, they don't really mean entirely. I'm like Dr. Bob. I could quit drinking for long periods of time if you kept me properly medicated, but I couldn't quit entirely, right? Or if when drinking, or if, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take. So, if it says if you've got those, if that's in place, you're probably alcoholic, and if that's the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. I was both of those things. I had this something wrong with me from the day, from the time I was a little kid, 12 years old, took my first drink. When I, when the effect of alcohol hits me, my reaction to that has always been, I can't, I need more of it. I can't get enough of it. And that's the, that's the, the reason that I, I have little control over the amount I take. Now, I, I could point, I had a few instances in my life when I was out somewhere to dinner with some people that are on my back about my drinking, and I could have two to show them. But I couldn't, I usually had to go get messed up later that night, you know, because it, but I really, it starts something rolling. Once I let that tiger out of the cage, I can't get it back in. It has a life of its own. And, uh, and then when I've been rendered sober, and I, you know, one of the things I, I used to talk to talk about when, when I got sober. Well, I, I never really got sober on my own power. I, I never stopped drinking on my own power. I always had to be stopped by running out of money, getting so physically sick I can't drink anymore, getting arrested, shaming myself into recovery. I did that once or twice. You know, you just do something so horrible and hideous on a drug and a blackout that when you find out about it, you just, oh, <sighs> You shame yourself into it. But I have never once in all the years I was partying ever got to a point where I could, I'd said to myself, I said this to myself, I couldn't carry it out, where you think, you know, this is getting out of line here. I better quit because by next week this could really become a problem. And then quit. I could say that to myself, but I never quit, you know. I have to, I have to hit the wall. I have to hit the wall. So those two things are always in place for me. Once I start, I'm, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know how far it's going to go. It's like it's like having it's like having sex with a gorilla. You ain't done till the gorilla's done. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, you know? <laughs> that's just that's just the way it is. Uh, so so that's what brings a guy like me to the table. When you really get it that you're in this trap you can't spring, that for some reason when you start, 
you, you can't stop, so you burn your life to the ground. It's an eventuality. And when you've been stopped and you're getting another chance, you can't take advantage of it because you can't quit entirely. You always, no matter how much you swear to yourself, if you're like me, as I did many times, I, I would say, that, oh my God, this time I mean it. And seven or eight or ten or eleven months later, I'm back at it again. This is, this, getting this, the getting the truth about me, seeing through the delusion of, all oh, I'm going to turn it around, or I'm going to do this, or this time I'm going to drink like a gentleman, or all the, the, the crap that I try to tell myself in my head, once I could see all, once I wore all of that thin, then I'm in a bad, bad spot. And I... I think guys like me uh, have to be in that spot. That one of the great uh, influences in Bill Wilson's life was a guy by the name of William James. And William James wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And uh, Bill Wilson, after he had his spiritual experience in Towns Hospital, was given a copy of that. And I think that's one of the reasons we're here. William James, if you've ever read the book, it's a hard book to read. I've read it twice in my sobriety. The first time it was like reading Greek or something. And then I went back uh, not too long ago, several years ago, and read it again. I got, I started to get something out of it. And what he did was something that um, I don't know that it had ever been done before. He tried to scientifically observe and, and figure out what's the, the commonality in people who have religious or spiritual experiences. And he did it from a very kind of objective point of view. And he discovered that people who have these conversion, born-again, spiritual experiences, these experiences that seem to change your life, they all have two things in common. The first thing that they all have in common is it never happens to you when you're on a roll. I mean, it just doesn't happen. You just have, you just came back from Vegas, hit the mega bucks for two million dollars, you married a showgirl, and you think, I'm gonna find God. I mean, it's just never, it's never like that. I mean, it's, it's always when you're broken and demoralized and you hate yourself and you hate what you've become and you feel hopeless. And then the second thing that he found that those experiences had in common is that they were invariably transitory experiences, which means that often the shine would wear off of them and the old personality would reassert itself and you'd be back to being you again, back to being the guy that doesn't do well. And boy, is that true for me. I I had epiphany experiences in therapy and I got I sort of got saved sort of semi one time. and I would always... Be back to being me again. The shine of that experience could always wear off for me. And uh, I suspect that we are here because Bill got that. He he got that he 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 got that this experience he had in Towns Hospital was not the end. It was only the beginning. And unless it followed by uh, by a lot of spiritual actions and a lot of self sacrifice and helping other people, that he would not be able to keep that experience alive. And that's proved to be the test of time. I, I know in my home group, I did this one night in, in, a, in a workshop. I asked for a show of hands of people, anybody in here that's ever been saved and then drank again after that. And I was surprised how many hands went up. 
a lot of people's hands went up. Where you think you, you, you think you got it. And then later on, it's, it's different. It goes, you revert back to being you again. So, so how does a guy like me really come to the table? I mean, okay, I gotta get that I'm screwed. I gotta get that I'm in a trap, but I can't spring. But that in itself, how does that, what's it, ha- what's the hap- has to happen? And on page 25 of the book, it's an amazing description of exactly what had happened to me. And I remember the instances, a couple instances that were just key to bringing me to the table. It says, there is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings which this process requires for its successful consummation. Well, that's an understatement. I don't know anybody. I've never met anybody that came to AA and went, Oh, I get to write an inventory? Oh, this is wonderful. I get to make amends? I can't wait. Nobody likes that. It's We, we do that stuff because we're under the gun. I mean, we're under the gun of alcoholism. I mean, when you think about it, to pay people back? I mean, to do all that stuff? Oh, jeez. But here's what it says. These two, these two things, and this is exactly what had happened to me. It says, but we saw that it really worked in others. And that was my first awakening in Alcoholics Anonymous is that I had an experience that that I, that took me to a place where I knew something that I needed to know. And and what it was is that I... See, I could have went on... I could have died in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous listening to your miracle stories about God forever and never connected because I there's something about me you get me sober and put me in a group of sober people, you're them. You know what I mean? You don't count. You're the do-gooders in AA. And it, you're not like me, really. So I can discount your experiences. You know, I, I used to do that. I just sit there listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But what happened to me is I was in a, I was in a halfway house and I'm, I'm sober a little while and I'm really have made up my mind that I'm not going to drink and I'm not going to do any hard drugs and I'm just, because I'm dying here. But that's all I do. And I, I got a running partner in there and we, him and I, we go to meetings together. We sit in the back of the room and judge the people in AA. I mean, that's just what we do. We just sit there and we cross talk in the meetings and we just, we're disruptive and we just goof on the people in AA. And is if you, if you want to really judge AA properly, you kind of need a partner to get the right torque on the personalities. I mean, and him and I, we, we both, we, we both came from the same streets. We both drank alike. We both felt alike. We both had a lot of the same problems. This guy is like me. And, uh, we could, we just, we knew we couldn't drink, but my God, we, this is, sobriety is bad. Can't we do something? So we started this marijuana maintenance thing together, right? And, and we started smoking pot. And naturally, I mean, this is not a surprise. I go back to drinking. Of course I go back to drinking. Cause I've, I've let the, I've left the cage door open the minute I picked up a joint of marijuana for the tiger to get out. You know, I, of course I go back to drinking. And I get thrown out of this place and I'm living in this, on the streets and I'm crashing in an abandoned building and I'm dirty and I'm sick 
and I'm drinking that cheap wine, and I got the shakes, and I go, the only thing, I don't know what else to do, so I, I, I go back to the place I'd been thrown out of, and I stand just off property waiting for the guys to come to, out on their way to do their laundry or to work so I can beg nickels and dimes from them to get another bottle of Richard's Wild Irish Rose. And uh, one one day uh, he comes out, my running partner comes out, and he sees me. And he gave me that look. I tell you, it's a bad look. And I bet you most of you have seen that somewhere along the line from somebody who you've been close to. That look that's a combination of pity and contempt. And I'm shaken and I'm bloodshot eyes and I'm dirty and I... I've been bathed and I got hair down to here with like twigs in it and stuff, you know, and I just, I'm a mess and I'm pathetic and he gives me a couple dollars and, and I went off to, to get my jug of wine and just blot out that whole uncomfortable experience of him seeing me like that. And unbeknownst to me, him seeing me like that snapped him. It did, it like hit him right in the face and he realized that what he was looking at was him if he kept on the same road he was going on. And he he went and got a sponsor, not just a sponsor, he got one of those fanatical people we couldn't stand as a sponsor. You know what I mean? You know, those when you're sitting in AA and you're not doing anything and you have untreated alcoholism, there's a certain type of member of AA that just makes your skin crawl. I mean, the ones that always talk about the steps and helping others. And they're, they're happy and sober at the same time, which is some kind of abomination. I don't know what that's about. But he got one of those crazy, fanatical AA guys as a sponsor, changed his sobriety date, started over, quit pot. And I don't know any of this is happening. And a good part of a year later, um, probably almost a year later, I'm in another institution sitting in the day room waiting for the do-gooders from AA to bring the meeting in there, and here he comes leading the pack. And he's got the lights on, and he's laughing, and he's got guys with him that he's trying to help. I guess he sponsors them. And he drove there in his car, and it's licensed and insured. <laughs> he's got his hair cut short. He look, he's all cleaned up. He looks like he looks nice. He's got a tie on it. For, a tie, for God's sakes. I mean... Oh, they've really got to this guy. Oh, but and he's he, his life is good, and I'm hearing him laughing with these guys and stuff and goofing around with them. And, you know, I probably could have stayed in Alcoholics Anonymous and gone in and out of the rooms for years and discounted you, but I couldn't discount him because I could see that something had happened to him, and he was like me, and I knew he was like me. He wasn't one of you. He was a guy just like me. And it, I tell you, I thought about him a lot after that. I didn't get sober. That wasn't my moment of getting sober. I, I went another year on those streets. But I always knew. I knew something now. I knew that AA not only worked for those crazy religious do-gooders, but it somehow had worked for a guy like me. And the second thing it says, after we saw that it really worked in others, we had come to believe in the hopelessness of, and futility of life as we'd been living it. My God, I, I, I was that. I mean, that was it. What, if you, if you're the person that, if you lived anything like I lived, where you get to that point where you swear to yourself because you just feel so awful that you'll never go back to that stuff again and you go back to it, 
and you swear again you'll never go back to it, and you go back to it, there is a hopelessness and futility about that. And in the process, trying everything, went to the great greatest psychiatrists available, tried medications, tried church, tried everything, and I keep going back to that awful, awful place again. And I can't stop it. I, t- I believed in the hopelessness and futility of my life way before I ever believed that there was a God. Way before that I even really believed that A would work for me, even though I saw that it worked for him. But boy, I sure knew about that hopelessness and the futile thing of the spree and remorse. And the, what really makes it futile is that there's a reality that is awful and painful. And the reality is, not only am I burning my life to the ground, but I ain't even getting the fun of the party no more. I can't get back to the good old days. And I'm doing it for nothing. I'm, it's like, when, once you cross that line in alcoholism, and it stops being doing something really for you and lighting up your spirit, it's starting to do something to you. It's like you're paying rent on a house that burnt down. That you can't, you're, it's like paying rent in a house you can't even go into. It's a bad deal. It says when we believe, got those, we believe in those two things. If we'd seen it work in others and we believe in the hopelessness and futility of our life as I had been living it. When therefore I'm approached again, when those two things are in place, by those in whom the problem had been solved, at this point it says there's nothing left but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools that is laid at my feet. And I finally got to a place there was nothing left. I don't know what, there's something in me that will do anything, think anything, just imagine anything, try anything, because I don't want to be hopeless. Because it just terrifies me to accept my own hopelessness. It feels like I'm flushing myself down the toilet like it's you're gone. And I, 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 I did everything in me to avoid that. But you get to a place where you can't, you know, all the hope of turning it around or the hope of getting it back on your feet or the hope of finding the right combination of stuff or the hope of maybe find the right relationship or if I was properly financed or whatever you tell yourself, the lies and illusions you tell yourself. And what happens is you go, you go at that long enough, you've gotten into all those places and it still didn't work. And it's, you're still you. And it's still bad. And that's not good. There's, cause then you get to a place there's nothing left, cause you know, you, you know there's no hope. I mean, you've tried it all. You've done it all. There's no hope. It says we're at a place where there's nothing left except to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools that had been laid at my feet repeatedly for seven over seven years and I kept kicking it away because I know what I need. Thank you. Right? I need a better job. I need a girlfriend that really loves me. Not like that other one. Right? You know what I'm saying? You tell yourself, oh, that's, I need a new psychiatrist. I need better medication. I need on and on and on and on. I wore all that stuff out. And I've been offered this simple kit of spiritual tools for years. I kick it out of the way because I got an opinion. 
and a judgment of what you're offering me. Isn't that weird how I could judge what you're offering me and haven't tried it? But I just know stuff about things I've never tried. I don't, it's a, I, I fit the old adage, you, you can always tell an alcoholic and you can't tell them much. I'm that guy. You know, I can go out, I can go out on a drunk and it could burn my life to the ground and the first thing I'll get back is my opinion. Right? That's the kind of guy I am. 1978, I couldn't get my opinion back. I couldn't get my self-reliance back. I, there was nothing left but to pick up this simple kit of spiritual tools. And you know what it's like? It's, I thought about, I, I was thinking about this years ago. I was up at a, going into a meeting in a place where there's a lot of homeless people that live around there. And, and a guy, there was a guy there panhandling change. He was in bad shape. He was dirty. He was living in the bushes, basically. And I thought, I thought, isn't it funny how, how you have these prejudices? And I had a prejudice against that. I just caught myself thinking stuff about this guy. I don't even know anything about him. Thinking, ah, he's a bomb or something. You know, that was my first response. And I felt so bad about it, I went back and gave him some money. Because I felt, you know, I caught myself with that kind of deal, right? Thinking, I don't really know if that guy's a bum. Maybe he's, you know, whatever. And I thought, that's like AA. Uh, and it's almost like, let's say you're walking down through the part of Portland where all the homeless guys are, and some little old man comes out of the bushes, dirty, with three or four overcoats on, you know, and grease, not slicked back hair or something, you know, really kind of bad shape, shaking. He says, can you give me a quarter? And you give him a quarter. And he says to you, he says, you know, thank you. Thank you. I really like you. You know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to give you $5 million. And he reaches inside his inner coat pocket. He pulls out a tattered, dirty check that, that you know he's stolen from some counter off a bank somewhere. With an old pencil, he writes you out a check for a million dollars. If you're like me and you think like me, you're going to be nice to the guy maybe if you're not having a bad day. And you're going to walk away when you're out of sight. You're going to rip it up, you know, because you know it's bunk. You know that it's can't, it's not real. And the guy doesn't even have a quarter. How's he going to give you five million dollars? And I've been tearing up that check for seven years, and I never got it. The check's good. The, the check's good. Right? And I don't get it. Because i got a, opinions of what you're offering me. You're offering me the steps and a way of life and, and, a, and a passageway, a portal, a process that will connect me with a power greater than myself. I'm like that. I'm like with that old bum. So I never cashed the check. 1978, when there's nothing left, I took the check. And I've been cashing that check ever since. And it's a check, you cash it, it's a, it's like that, it's, it's just endless. It never, the more you cash the check, the bigger the check, you find a bigger check the next day. It's, it's endless. It says, we have found much of heaven and been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we have not even dreamed. And that's where God is. In the fourth dimension. Einstein said the fourth dimension was time. And God is, there's only one place you'll ever find God, and that's right here, right now. And when you're, when you're self-centered and self-obsessed and have this malady of the spirit, you're not present in your own life. You're up in your head thinking about your life, but you're not really present. And you guys have taught me, you've given me more presence 
as a result of these steps and clearing away the stuff that keeps me up my head chattering and not living life, thinking about life, you've given me more presence in my life than I ever had. Not that I, I still have that inclination to self-centeredness. I go up in my head a lot. I'm a thinker. I'm a deep thinker. A lot of deep thinkers in AA. <laughs> why we have, the deep thinkers really need sponsors. Um, I sponsor a lot of deep thinkers and I tell them, I said, oh, I said, when you get a real, when you get an idea, call me. If it's a brilliant idea, come and see me. Um, yeah. So we're rocketed into the fourth dimension. And on, uh, back to we agnostics. Some things that, were confusing to me. I, I misinterpreted uh, a lot of what I saw in Alcoholics Anonymous and what I what I heard here. Um, page forty-five. It says something interesting. It says lack of power. That was our dilemma. You know what I thought they I thought they were saying lack of religion. I thought they were saying lack of faith. They're not saying any of that. They're saying lack of power. That was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how are we to find that power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which by which you can live. That's the main object of Alcoholics Anonymous, is to connect a powerless, stuck, desperate person with the power to live sober. Um, because I don't have that, really. I quit drinking, and I hole up in my head until it feels like I'm doing time so much I can't take it, and I start to yearn and thirst and hunger for freedom from this, from up here. Mm. There's a letter, uh, uh, I, I got a copy if anybody wants to see it, written by Carl Jung to Bill Wilson towards the end of Carl's life. And it was in, he wrote this letter in response to a letter Bill Wilson wrote Carl Jung. And he said something in the, amazing in this letter. He said that there was something he always believed from his experience about alcoholics, but he was hesitant to tell Roland Hazard because if he was afraid he'd be misunderstood but that he always believed that the alcoholic's thirst for alcohol was a low-level thirst of the alcoholic's being for unity, connectedness, or as expressed in medieval terms, a union with God. And is it, boy, is that true? I drank because a guy who's locked up in his head, who doesn't fit, who's dying of loneliness, who doesn't even belong on this planet, could have five drinks at one time in my life when it really worked and I could come out and play and feel a part of and connected and the loneliness would go away. And I'd feel whole, almost complete. And I thirsted for that. I thirsted for it. I, I, I think that Alcoholics Anonymous is really a search for that same power in a different way. Uh, I understand why some of the, some of the, 
There's monks and religious writers who used to drink a lot. And why that sometimes they'd get lit up on booze, and that's when they'd feel, they'd really get inspired and connected to God. Because you, do you remember that feeling? Like there was in the early days of your drinking, you get that right kind of buzz going on. Man, you're connected to the universe. I mean, you can see truth now. I mean, you know, you're just, you're there. You're there. And I, I, I suspect that if you're like me and once you've tasted that, then nothing but that ever does any good again. You got, you live for that. And when that well dries up, and it always does with alcohol, because alcohol is not really what you're looking for. But it's as close as some of us that never found what we're really looking for ever get. And when that dries up, there's a desolation about alcoholism and a loneliness that's just horrible. The last couple of years of my drinking, I couldn't get that effect back, and it was bad. I drank, and I was depressed. I drank and felt sorry for myself, and I drank and felt like I was dying of loneliness. And even when I was in a relationship, I was alone. Even when I was surrounded by people that I knew cared about me, I was alone. I was alone, and it was painful. So that's exactly what this book's about. A search for power. Somehow I gotta find a way to turn that juice back on that I'd once found in drinking. A way to connect. I need the power that alcohol gave me. The power to be part of this planet, to connect, to feel, to feel good about my life. I need that. And I can't get it. Therapy didn't give it to me. I'll tell you, if you, if there was a therapist that after half hour session could make you feel like five shots of tequila and five shots of tequila work, people would be giving him their bank accounts and anything, just anything. Right? It says down the, a little further down the page, it says many times we talk to a new man and watch his hope rise as we discuss his alcoholic problem and explain our fellowship, but his face falls when we speak of spiritual matters, especially when we mention God, for we have reopened a subject which our man thought he neatly evaded or entirely ignored. And that I remember that experience. I, I, I'm, in June, I get to go up to Maine. And I haven't been to Maine since I've been sober. But I lived up there for a little while when I was drinking. And I, I had an experience. And I'm going to get to go in and talk at a hospital that I was in up there. And I was in this hospital uh, up in Waterville as a treatment center for alcoholism. And when I was in there, they brought in a uh, a group of Alcoholics Anonymous that was composed of trustees from the state prison in Tom Thomason State Penitentiary. And it was the first time... Now, you got to understand, by this time, I've been exposed to AA and sat in AA meetings for several years now. But they were... I never got anything from the people. They were always them. You know, you, I'll tell you what it looked like. To, I'm a street guy, right? People in AA to me look like somebody who maybe got a little too drunk one day and said something unkind to their boss and went to AA for better business connections or something. I mean, you look like those people, right? But I'm in this place and they bring this prison group in and they got two speakers, a short speaker and a long speaker and a long speaker starts talking. And he's blowing my mind. I mean, he was he was doing life imprisonment. He he killed a cop. He was an outlaw motorcycle guy. He was a 
big, big, tough guy, big arms on him. I mean, he's the kind of guy that looked like he was afraid of nothing. And I I sat there thinking, man, I'd have drank with this guy. Because when you're secretly weak and pathetic, I used to gravitate to people like that, you know, because they kind of got your back. You know, if you get a running partner like that, you're in good shape. And I'm listening to this guy talking about he's carrying shotguns and doing all this stuff. And then then he started getting to me because then he'd talk about coming to the next morning, curled up in a ball, feeling like a scared little kid. And I'm looking at him thinking, my God, you I feel like that. But you, you feel like that? He was blowing my mind. I'm ready. I don't know what he's in, but I'm ready to sign up. I mean, I'm going to sign up for this AA. And all of a sudden, because I'm getting this guy, I like this guy. And then he does something. He starts talking about God. And the minute he did that, I, saw, I sat there and thought to myself, Oh, what have they done to him? Oh, no. No, not God. Oh, not him. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. Man, I couldn't believe it. Because I, I had a lot of prejudices about God. I didn't even know. You know, the, the funny thing about prejudices as you don't know their prejudices, it's just stuff you think is so. And on the next page, it talks about two things that have to... It, it, I think this is... It capsulizes all of my experience with step two in a short little paragraph in the middle of page 46. It said if you can do two things, and it doesn't even say you have to know there's God or believe in God. It says, let us make haste to reassure you that we found as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice. And I had a lot of prejudices. And the guys I sponsor, we, we, that's one of the first things we do after we look to see if they got alcoholism. What are your prejudices? What are the ones you don't know? What are the old ideas about God that make it hard in the dead of night when you're ashamed of yourself because you just screwed up to turn to that power? What are the things in you, the ideas, the judgments? Because that's what prejudice is. It's It's your old ideas. It's your preconceived notions. What are the old ideas in you that make it so you can't, there are times when you can't turn to God? What are those prejudices? And it doesn't say you have to get rid of them. It says just lay them aside. All your conception. And I think what it's asking me to do is exactly what had happened to me in 1978. Coming to this thing from a place of demoralization where I get it that I don't know anything. I don't know nothing. I don't know. I need help. Almost like a child who knows nothing. It says if I can do that and do one other thing, and it says express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than myself. I can do those two things. The book says I'll commence to get results even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power which is God. Impossible. And that's exactly how I entered into this relationship, started to enter into this relationship with this power greater than myself. I came to the table as a skeptic and a person who didn't believe. I didn't believe in God, but I believed in my own futility and hopelessness. I believed I was stuck. I was believed I was dying. I believed I was in a trap I could not spring and I could not fix myself and I tried absolutely everything, everything that there was to try. And I was stuck. 
And so the members of Alcoholics Anonymous, when I was new, they told me to do some things that I'm, it's, I had to have been beaten down to do them. They took advantage of my weakness. Things like, they said, I want you to get down physically, get down on your knees every single morning and every single night and ask for the help from whatever's running the universe to stay sober that day and then get down on your knees and thank whatever that was and know that that wasn't you that got you stayed, kept you sober. And I started doing it. I didn't like it. I was living in a halfway house. I'd go in the bathroom, lock the door, push the throw rug underneath the crack in the door so nobody can see me pray in case... I don't know. Isn't <laughs> that crazy? But this, I remember doing that. I just pushed, pushed that thing. I was so paranoid. So you know, it was, I, Here's my fear. Like a bunch of people in A are going to bust in. And, ah, we got one. You know, so, I don't know. I, I just, I felt, I'm, a, I'm a knucklehead. You know, I, I'm afraid that, make, that I'm going to feel stupid. So I started doing it. And I get down on my knees at night and I thank whatever that was. And from the moment of the approach, from the, I'm telling you, from the day I started doing that, and I don't believe in God, things started happening in my life. And I resisted it. I didn't want, I went back to this guy, argued with him. I said, I, because I, I was in a meeting and I'm hearing about people talking about praying. Some guys pray when they're driving their car. Other guys pray sitting on the, in the john. I said to this guy, how come I got to get, they, these guys pray all these other ways. They pray, some guys pray laying in bed. How come I got to get down on my knees? He says, not everybody does. Just guys with egos like yours. Oh. <laughs> and what I realized that I wasn't praying because God needed me to pray. I was on my knees. I was praying on my knees because I needed to be on my knees. God didn't care. But boy, was it important to me. To, to create a demonstration of a willingness, and that's exactly what it says here. It says if we're, if we express even a willingness, and what's a better expression or a demonstration of a willingness from a guy who doesn't believe than a physical demonstration? For me to physically get down on my knees, I can't think of a better demonstration. And the miracle started happening. I'm talking about the subtle things, you know, like, where I'm at the very end of my rope and I'm afraid I'm going to be out on the streets and I get the, the job just comes right out of nowhere for me. Not the one I wanted. I mean, God had that. That, that it was the good job that was just right for me. Just right for me. Put a roof over my head. Put a, just, just a, not a lot of money, just enough money because he'd given me too much money back in those days. I had, had to go to some saloon and tell everybody how smart I was. It was just enough me, money to keep cigarettes in my pocket so I can put a dollar in a basket, feel like I'm a part of AA, and get me just pay my basic rent at the halfway house. It was just right. And I just started take, getting taken care of. I, I can't tell you how many dozens of times in my early sobriety I would be uh, jammed up. And I don't have the presence of mind to know what's wrong. And I just, God, I just feel awful. Please help me. And I'd go to some meeting. There'd be somebody there I don't even know talking exactly about how I feel and what's going on with me. And not only is he pinning it in a way that I can get it, but he's also telling me what he did. And all of a sudden, I realized, oh my God, i got to go back and clear this air with my boss. I, and I didn't have the presence of mind. to. Fit. I didn't know how to do a 10th step. And God started working through the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started to come to believe the only way a guy like me really can. I, 
I, I'm not capable of believing in something because you tell me. I mean, I'd like, I tell you, if I could be that way, my life would have been a lot easier. I'd have listened to my dad growing up. But I, I'm not that way. But what had to happen is God went out of his way to come into my life. And I started to believe just by the reality of what was happening. I was over in London the summer before last and I was, I was amazed to see that they, the streets of London, they still, there's certain parts that still have the, the gas street lights. And years ago, before they had the electric starters, the streets of London at night were lit by these gas lamps and they had, they didn't have electric starts, so they had a guy that was job was is to go up and down the streets of London with a long pole with a flame on the end and he'd light those deals. And you could climb up to the top of the highest building in London, look out over the city at twilight, and you could not see where this lamplighter guy was. But you could always see where he'd been. And I could sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous at two and a half years sober, crazy, full of myself, and I don't know where God is. He's not present in my life because I haven't worked the rest of the steps yet. I didn't do that until I was over four years sober. But even in the, even in the state of untreated alcoholism that I, I was trying to outrun by going to 15 meetings a week, God, I took the basic introductory actions and brought that power into my life. And I could sit in those meetings and I could see where God had been in my life. And I could see a lot of where he'd been in the lives of other guys I'd seen coming in and out of AA and all of a sudden they turned the corner and Guys getting their kids back and getting the light on in their eyes. Hopeless guys. Their life's turned around. And I mean, you'd have to be an idiot to sit in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You'd have to be asleep. But to sit here and be awake and watch what happens here. My God, there's something here. I mean, we are the, we are the, we are the paragons of bad luck and all of a sudden what I mean what I mean what's it I mean like all of a sudden we get lucky I mean no we didn't get brighter I mean I don't know about you if, if anything I hope I've gotten dumber uh, but I've connected with something here on page 55 of the book it talks about how I'm going to make that connection and I didn't make it for a while because I hadn't worked the steps but it says deep down and every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. And it goes on to say that this, it's obscured, it's blocked off by some things that I will uncover in step four when I follow the process in this book. Steps four, actually through seven. And then if I do that, I will find the great reality deep down within me. And I, I found that power in my life. Sometimes it's very, very present and it's a consciousness. And sometimes I just say the words and the prayers. And it kind of comes and goes, you know, sort of like the tides. Some days in AA, you're so connected you want to get a tent and a tambourine. And other, and other days you just, you call your sponsor and go to another meeting, you know. And, uh, and that's just the way it seems to be. And I, I, did, I, one of the things I realized that it's, 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 it's child, it's spiritually childish of me 
to expect to be plugged in, tuned up, turned on 24-7, that there are movements of my soul and self. The real thing that blocks me from God in this flow, that blocks the channel in this flow of power, self never goes away. And it's it's the battle and the it's the big tug of war and sobriety between in my spirit between self and God. And and for the rest of my days I will have step ten, eleven, and twelve and a good sponsor in my life because that that natural propensity and inclination to play God, to judge everybody, to be in control, to do all that crap has never left me. And yet most days if you were to watch, if you were to follow me around and watch my life, most days I live a life that looks like I'm fairly surrendered. At least I'm in the zip code. You know what I mean? At least I stay, I stay in the zip code, because if you get out of the zip code, then you're, you're going down a bad road. I stay in the zip code of carrying out that decision in step three. Um, thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.